To have passion in life is everything. What's your Everest? Oh, is it yeah. that 200 inch box? They just look so impressive when they're wide. Especially running away. <laughs> Welcome to this week's episode of Eastman's Elevated. It's like a think tank for outdoor activity. Sounds exactly like my hunting. Just always thinking about it, always trying to evolve it and make it better. Here's your host, Brian Barney. Hey, what's happening, guys? Got a brand new Eastman's Elevated for you. So on today's podcast, uh, I do part two of the Western Hunting Summit question and answer. Uh, so on the panel, uh, I've got Hillary Lampers, uh, I've got Mark Livesay, e-scouting wizard, uh, and then I've got Ryan Lampers, consistently successful backcountry hunter. So I uh, really enjoyed last week's recording, uh, and so this is a continuation. Um, we split the, the group of guys into two different groups, and then this was the second group. So totally new questions, totally new answers. Uh, it was just a, a great format to get out information, so psyched to share it with you guys. We'll get right into it. I just want to thank a couple sponsors. I want to thank Black Rifle Coffee Company, a veteran-owned coffee company that just produces the best coffee out there. Uh, I absolutely love their instant coffee and their teabag coffee uh, for using for backcountry hunters. It's the best I've ever tasted and then sits really well with my stomach. And then they've got a multitude of other products as well. Uh, their their coffee subscription is great. They've got the, the best roasts out there. Um, I'm really enjoying it. Uh, you can also get a deal on there if you go to Black Rifle Coffee Company uh, and land on the Eastman's page and put in the promo code BRIAN. Uh, you'll get some off of that coffee subscription or uh, any order for that matter. But yeah, veteran-owned company, uh, Evan Hafer, Hafer and Matt Best, uh, they just do a fantastic job. Uh, they're hunters and outdoorsmen themselves, and so we're really happy to have their support and show them our support here on Eastman's Elevated. I also want to thank Matthews Bows. Uh, Matthews bows, they've just been killing it lately. I've been so impressed with like these last three years of bows have been my favorite bows that, I, that I've ever owned. Uh, the Vertex, the VXR, and now the V3. Um, it's just an amazing bow. That V3 is so quiet, so forgiving, holds a tune throughout the season. It's just been shooting great for me. Um, I just got back from that Hawaii trip, which was an amazing trip. Um, I executed some really good shots in that uh, that bow did its part and put those arrows right where my pin was, which is what I'm looking for. Uh, but yeah, it just holds a tune. It's so forgiving. It's just the perfect hunting western bow, and I'm getting uh, really good performance out of it as well. Uh, getting a lot of good pass-throughs, and that's with a 26.5-inch draw, 70-pound bow, uh, 450-grain arrows. So I just can't say enough good things about them. I've absolutely fallen in love with the brand. Uh, if you're in the market for a new bow, make sure to check out and shoot that Matthews. They're building great bows. And with that, over there at Eastman's, uh, we're giving away a Quiet Cat e-bike this month, uh, giving that away through TagHub, so to TagHub members. TagHub is our internet research tool. Uh, it's just got tons of data in there uh, for every western state, every species, uh, so you can really learn where the good units are and also find the sleeper units. It seems like in today's day and age, it, it is about searching for these units uh, that aren't so popular or that you can get with zero, one, two tags. And 
and really the majority of places I hunt are low draw odds or general season hunts that I can hunt every year and improve my skill set so when I show up I can be successful. But this Tag Hub is a, a great resource for that. Uh, so you can pick up a membership, they'll throw in magazines with it. It's just a great deal. And and this month giving away that quiet cat bike as well. So check that out. Uh, you can get a subscription to both magazines. We've got a promo code. Uh, it's elevated three two one. That'll get you both magazines for fifty dollars and a free outdoor edge knife, which is a replaceable blade knife that just does great. Uh, it's a little bit uh, more rigid. Um, that, that you can put more pressure on it and don't bust blades. So it's a great knife. You can also put in that same promo code for one of the magazines if you're just interested in the Eastman's Hunting Journal or just the Eastman's Bow Hunting Journal. That's $30 in a, a free outdoor edge knife. Uh, so again, that code is elevated321. And with that, uh, man, I've got a really cool episode coming out here. Um, I'm not sure if it's out on TV yet or not, but we're going to release it to the internet and to TV. It's a, a high country hunt from last season, a really cool one. I'm really proud how it turned out. So that'll be coming out. Check that out on the Outdoor Channel, Eastman's Hunting TV, or we'll release it to our YouTube, which is the Beyond the Grid. Uh, just search Eastman's Hunting TV on YouTube, and that'll put you there on the landing page. And... um yeah, we've got a few talks coming up, so uh, I believe the 22nd is um, we're doing uh, a talk with Fieldcraft Survival, so we're planning that out now. Uh, I have a talk in Phoenix on the 20th, uh, going to do an elk hunting seminar down there, and it's going to be a good one. I think I've got an hour and a half or hour and 45 minutes of time to fill uh, with without much silence, of course, so uh, yeah, it'll, it'll be a, a good one, so planning that out as well on the 20th, that's in Phoenix. And, um, man, I, I think that's going to do it. Just working hard here, um, getting back from this Hawaii trip, which was absolutely amazing. Gosh, a ton of experiences, hanging out with really good friends. Um, I recorded a podcast while I'm out there, so uh, we'll put that out and um, probably also record a solo here just as we're getting ready for season. I'd like to do a solo mule deer episode, uh, uh, maybe a, a recap of like um, the nuances of the stock. Like there's just so many, um, there's so many small details that come into play on these stocks, uh, you know, and, and, and Hawaii really sharpens those skills and sharpens my still hunting skills, uh, wind reading, just all that stuff. It brings it to the forefront of my mind. So I'd like to record it while it's fresh here and get it out to you guys. So I'll sit down this week, record a, a solo or two, and try to get one of those out uh, each month and um, try to get you guys this good information before hunting season gets here. We're um, we're right on the precipice of it. Um, we're close. Uh, season's just um, uh, a month away for the August dates and then September, you know, two months away. But we're getting close. Now's the time to put in that work and prove those skills and, and just be ready to... to, to um, uh, ready to go hard during season and, and put in our all and, and uh, try to be successful on the mountain. I absolutely can't wait. It's going to be a riot. So I got some more construction work to get done here and um, set myself up for a good hunting season. So yeah, just back to the grind here and back to work getting things done and um, man, keep training hard and getting ready for the season. But it's, it's uh, going to be a fun one for sure. So uh, thanks, you guys. Let's get into this podcast. So this is the Western Hunting Summit question and answer. 
Uh, we've got Hillary Lampers, Mark Livesay, and Ryan Lampers, and I'm your host, Brian Barney. I'm on the panel as well, and um, Eastman's Elevated. Here we go. Okay, guys, we're, so we're going to do a live podcast here. So we've got some questions. I think we're going to end up asking some live questions and wanted to record it for yeah. the podcast. So uh, thanks again to, to Ryan and Hillary Lampers. They've just put on a great summit. It's, this is just an absolute wealth of knowledge. And so you'll see me sitting in the back absorbing the same knowledge as you guys are because the key to being a good, uh, consistently successful backcountry hunter is to keep evolving and keep learning. Uh, so, so I'm soaking up this same knowledge. We also got Mark Livesay on the podcast. Uh, the guy has a wealth of knowledge. He's been hunting for, uh, I, I don't want to date him, but a lot of years. Uh, and an absolute e-scouting wizard. So uh, thanks for having old. him. So, uh, so let's get this thing started off. Uh, where do we want to start with the question? Go ahead. Okay, so I'm just going to repeat the question so we have it on here. So he's asking about um, backcountry meals. Um, so not all dehydrated meals and, and something that we use as a substitute or other things that we bring in the backcountry that we like to eat yeah. uh, that we get good performance out of. Oh, man, there's there's so many different ones that you can make with that dehydrator. Uh, Mark's got a lot of pretty cool recipes that he can talk about. Um, I think, you know, aside from what you said, like, spaghettis and chilies and things like that that are really easy to make uh stews are really easy just your favorite wild game stew make that up obviously don't have it too hearty and chunked up but you know cut it down to size but quinoa dishes are one of my favorite if if you like quinoa it's pretty good grain so from what my wife tells me it's pretty good for you it's high in protein and yeah. it's not like an allergen grain. and it rehydrates really really easily better than rice better than noodles, way faster. Um, so I just like taking a hodgepodge of vegetables and whatever meat you're making, whether it's a bear meat, deer meat, elk meat, um, burger, chicken, whatever you want to do, uh, you know, hodgepodge that together, just make some type of a vegetable curry or quinoa dish or a curry dish, which Mark loves, Jesus. absolutely loves. Um, curry dishes are probably one of my favorites. <laughs> totally nasty you but can actually dehydrate eat, any meal al almost almost like anything. i mean not salad or something but like any you can take, warm meal you, you can take pea soup and dehydrate yeah. it on a on a silicone rack and cr crunch it up and rehydrate pea soup or squash soup or even the runny soups you know with the dehydrators that they have now it makes it pretty easy so I know Mark makes all kinds of fancy like fancy like jambalaya. I don't. My wife does. Cheeseburger. I, I'm the I'm the put it in the machine, take it out of the machine, package it. She's the genius behind the preparation. But you talk about the meat. I learned it from you, so I don't want to take any credit. That's the key. Mm -hmm. it yeah, sure this is. is the secret. So maybe we should shut the podcast off. Um, <laughs> but no, this is the secret, guys, to making any dish available for dehydrating. In my opinion, how you prep the meat is the most important otherwise it's going to turn into jerky balls whatever but i learned it from ryan so i'm gonna let him do it so no go ahead go ahead spill the beans well you you can Talk correct me it. if i'm wrong so the, <laughs> the let's just say hamburger of any kind of hamburger okay yeah. my wife cooks it in the pan 
We don't drain off, but we drain some of the grease off because grease is not really your friend when it comes to dehydrating if it's too much. But I don't worry about it too much. I'll tell you why at the end. So she cooks the meat first, seasons it while it's cooking it, whatever you want to do. And then she adds these panko or whatever breadcrumbs you like. The finer the breadcrumb, the better. And then we've added one more step. That works. That will work. Mix it up real good where it's good. There's a good mixture. But the best way for us is what we've been doing is running it through it like a ninja or a food processor after the breadcrumbs. So it is microscopically encoding that meat with the breadcrumbs. And that's a wicking agent. That's the wicking agent for the moisture. It just rehydrates that meat like it was, like you just cooked it. There's no chewiness. There's no grit. There's no, That's what most people complain about when they dehydrate their own meals. Like, man, the meat and your meat's too big. Like Ryan said, you know, I can't stress dicing it up. My wife's starting to get a little bit lazy in some of the meals now. So I'm going to the background and these big giant pieces of carrot are in there. And I'm like, honey, these things are not rehydrating. But chopping it up fine, doing the meat like that, and then chicken, canned chicken, high moisture, pressure cooked chicken. Um, because again, the pressure drives the moisture interstitially into the chicken. And again, it just rehydrates. You don't have to use the breadcrumbs. We don't with the chicken because the canned chicken really rehydrates really well. I haven't tried canned meat, but I'm assuming it's very similar to the chicken mm-hmm. because of the product. Is that right? Yeah, you can take all the canned bear meat you had or whatever and use that as well. That stuff is just, it's just made to rehydrate if you dehydrate it again. Yeah, it comes back really fast. Those dehydrators are magic, like uh, uh, some food prep and trying things out, and you can have a great backcountry menu, you know, of real food that you feel really good eating. So, yeah, a little prep and, and trying things out goes a long ways before season. Uh, you know, I want to say one more thing, too, real quick about Guys, the little round dehydrators with the center fan, <laughs> they just don't cut it for meals. You can do fruits and do some leathers, do some things like that, but you really need a rear or a bottom um, exhaust fan type unit to really do quality meals. It's a little more money. It, you know, you can get a pretty good one for 300 bucks around there. Um, and, uh, I know you use, you've used several, but it's, it, it's the, de- that's the deal. Break. That's yeah. also another deal breaker. Usually where guys message me and they say they hit problems. First thing I ask is what dehydrator you're using. And usually they send me a photo of those round ones with the hole in the middle. And those things just don't do it. They'll, they just don't cook it or re or heat it enough and they get spots in there that don't get done. So they'll literally rot. It takes them so long to dehydrate. <laughs> Whereas you take like a, you know, a nine tray or a 10 tray box dehydrator, like an Excalibur, uh, meat, that company meat, meet your maker, I guess, meat Inc. They, uh, they make a really good one and it's even less than the, um, plastic, Excalibur that we've ran for for years, it's fifty dollars less, and it's a nice stainless, um, you know, dehydrator. It looks tent. nice in your kitchen. Ten tray, look like it's a digital. Plastic rickety thing that's shaking all the time. It's quiet, way quieter than an Excalibur. It's got a um, temperature control. Um, I think it goes up to one sixty five, so it's perfect. And then it's also got a timer. It's got all the things that you need for a, a quality, and it's about the cheapest that you'll find out there for a, a 10 tray dehydrator. You know, if you live in an apartment building and you're in an apartment, <laughs> dehydrating your own meals is going to get a little dicey because the smell when it's evaporating, it does, it does a arise the operation. <laughs> she loves and, uh, the smell. Especially if you're doing curry, like you're going to get kicked out of your apartment oh. complex. 
<laughs> Curry, liver. Liver's a bad one. Put it in your garage, man. It's so bad. It smells like death in your house. And uh, onions and garlic. and It's mm. great with watermelon and cantaloupe. You put that in there. It smells all fresh. And then you put onion and liver, and it's like, oh, my gosh. <laughs> so bad. So when I do my meals, I'll dehydrate them to about 14 hours in mine, uh, roughly. And it, th- that means there's still a tiny bit of moisture in mine. Because I... They'll go a long time like that. I put an oxygen absorber. I don't know if you do oxygen absorbers, but I put an oxygen absorber in a Mylar bag, food-grade Mylar, and then I throw them in the freezer. I've started – you don't have to. I think it would be just fine, but I just want to make sure that in 10 days nothing's going to go wrong. But if it's setting for – and I've eaten my meals a year and a half and no problems. I don't know. I haven't tested much past that because I pretty much eat them as I make them, but I don't know if that helps. But um, on my website – treelinepursuits.com. I have all the gear, all the bags, where are the oxygen absorbers, a little bit different dehydrators, than, but still same principle. So if you're looking for a bag option or you need some help, like looking for certain things, um, there's a lot of different bags out there, but I know guys are using Mylar, but you got to be careful about the Mylar. Um, it has to be food grade, meaning it withstand boiling temperature because they do, they can release some toxins if they're not that kind of grade. Yep. Good question. Yep. Definitely not long hair. <laughs> <laughs> you start looking like start, a homeless exactly. person living under the bridge in the city uh, when you have long hair. And you got a bunch of critters living in there and stuff. You come home and your wife is like, what happened to you? I feel like I got a natural ghillie suit if I need it. And Mark's shining bald head on the mountain when we were bear hunting was glowing. (laughs) Hey, so Ryan was He lost his hat. It was worse. Yeah, I lost my hat too like day two. I, I I was a hot mess on that hunt. So Ryan's sitting down below, and I know he was he was glassing us and bears at the same time. And I know he was looking for us by my bald head up on the ridge. You know, so, uh, yeah. yeah. I, I could see your bald head, and I could see uh, Hunter Orange. Those two things jumped out at me. <laughs> it's, it's just part. I mean, it doesn't matter. You know, the thing about being bald is I think you're more at a disadvantage if you've got a short. You're going to get sunburned more. You're going to have to take – I was – I mean, I look like I just got out of the tanning beds when I got back over this hunt without losing my hat. So, like um, I said, ghillie suit, wind <laughs> detector. Yeah, I see advantages here. I don't see any advantages to Mark's bald head. <laughs> there, there is not. I'm gonna go with many. the long hair on that one. And it's warmer when, it, when the when the cold hits. You got built-in uh, insulation. Man. <laughs> yep. Yeah, so he's talking about hunters, how you see two different types, guys that um, put a lot of effort into physical fitness and guys that don't. And I think it's definitely a spectrum, but uh, what do you guys think about physical fitness? What are your thoughts on it? And then I'll answer. Boy, I think everybody's – it's one of those things. It's a preference. So personally, I think if you're a runner, that's great. That's going to get your cardio up. That's what works for you. Um, there's a lot of guys that just elevate their game when it comes to hunting – 
because they've taken on the task of running a lot, doing these long runs, ultra marathons, running every day. Brian runs every day. Um, and look at him. I mean, he's a, he's a mountain goat. Uh, personally, I used to run a ton, and then I kind of got out of it. I just kept having these little injuries on my knees and feet. So I kind of got away from that. And what works for me is hiking with weight. If I have one thing I could do every day to better myself for a hunting season, it's just hiking with weight. And I do that more than anything else. Um, I think my wife would agree to that. And it's, you know, not a ton of weight either. You know, I'm getting old. I'm 47 now. I'm not throwing 100 pounds on my back and hiking every day. But I may throw like we did the other day on the course, 20, 25 pounds. Um, it adds a little extra. And I love to hike for time. Like we have trails that I'll do, you know, daily or just I know exactly how long it takes me. I've got it on my phone. And you never want to have a time not as good or if not better than the previous time. So you're always pushing yourself um, and not just going through the motions. I think a lot of folks, you know, they, they get gym memberships and they go and they sit on the treadmill and they, they just kind of go through the motions. And you can do that. I just don't think it's doing a whole lot of good. If you don't have a goal or a, a time that you have to beat or push yourself or a partner that's pushing you, I feel like it's it, – Maybe not a waste of time, but it's not going to get you where you where you need to be. So, yeah, for me, we have a bunch of equipment downstairs in the basement. My wife works out a ton in there in the mornings, but we have a box. I have, um, you know, some sandbags. So we do step-ups in the winter a lot more if we're not out hiking when it's minus temps. And those things have been really good. And uh, you can basically – one of the best workouts is carve out an hour – and see how many step-ups you can do with a 40-pound pack on. <clears throat> and that'll tell you where you're at, <laughs> how many you can do. It's tough. And you can challenge your buddies with a, a workout like that. And, um, you know, that's, that'll push you. And that's a, that's a really, really good workout. But other than that, yeah, it's just hiking with weight for me. That gets me where I need to be. I, I agree. I, guys, I'll give you a couple examples. But I, I believe in functional training. Train for the function that you're getting ready to do. The crossfitting is great. Um, running is great. But that's not what you're going to be doing when you got 60 pounds on your back and you're going up a knife ridge. It's at 40 degrees. You know, you're going steep. You're not training at that steepness very often. But if your back is used to the weight, you know, you're just going to adapt. So, I have, example, I have a friend of mine, same age as me. He's, he's just he's a real badass triathlete still to this day. And when we, he first shows up, it's one of those deals. He comes from Missouri every year to hunt with me, and he just kicks my booty the first couple of days. And then the reality starts setting in. His back is like, oh, my gosh. I mean, his shoulders, his shoulders are always hurting him because he doesn't train with the pack enough. He's fit, but he's not used to that weight. He's not used to his boots. He's not used to his ankles being sore. He's not, you know, and then he tries to go with these Solomon lightweight boots, and his ankles are killing him. He, that the songs would be fine if he trained with some little more weight. So functional weight. Step ups, simulating what you're doing. And in your training for swimming, I mean you're not running. Michael Phelps is not out running fifteen miles on the road because he's got to swim. So he's doing other stuff, but his core is swimming. Just be smart about the functional. You can almost dream up what you're gonna be doing. Think about what you know, think about what we did. So when we did the archery, okay? What was hurting you guys on that? Was it the 
the arrow retrievals? Was it when it was steep and it was a little unsure footing? Was that getting your breath up or was it hiking up the road? Was it the downhill where your knees hurting? You know, so work on the downhills. I think a lot of hunters don't spend enough time packing downhill. The downhill kills. A lot of people can go uphill. The downhill separates the wheat from the shaft sometimes, mm -hmm. especially the older, you know, like Ryan. He's getting up there. <laughs> and uh, he's always saying, oh, man, the downhill, the downhill. All the time. He's always complaining. He's always that. complained about the downhill. So but he can go uphill forever. Functional, get it done. You guys are both spot on. So, um, you know, being a consistently successful backcountry hunter, there's so many facets involved in it. Like, uh, if you're not in good shape, you can't get to where the animals are. It doesn't matter how good a shot you are if you can't get there. If you don't have the stalking skills, uh, you're never going to get close enough to them. And so, like, physical fitness is just another facet of being a successful hunter. So all these things that we talk about, your shooting in there with Joel, your e-scouting with Mark, your gear with Ryan, um, uh, 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 your mental fortitude and, and mental attitude. So, like, all of these factor into being consistently successful. So you can't just focus on one of those. So to some people, it's more important to be physically fit. Um, for me, I want to be well-rounded at all of them. So physically fit is extremely important to me. Like to be able to get around in the mountains, to be able to get to that animal, to be able to make that stock, like it's killed a lot of animals for me. Uh, so, so I put a lot of importance in being physically fit. So I'm ready for the mountains and in, in running marathons and ultra marathons, like a 10, a 10 day backcountry hunt is tougher than all of those. It's, it's the epitome uh, of an endurance sport. Like you have to go for 10 days, day after day of putting forth effort. So I want to ready my body for that. The other thing I do is I use my physical fitness to train my mind. I add those layers of mental toughness on as I'm doing that training day in, day out. It builds discipline, making myself do it day in, day out. Same thing as a hunt, making myself go that extra mile. And so I really use my physical fitness for training. But I agree with these guys. Like I use trail running because I can put this high exertion on my body in a short amount amount of time but but the best training for the mountains is the mountains so i don't run any pavement anymore i don't run any marathons i run all trails all mountains and, and the key for me is running elevation like running the flat does nothing for me this morning i gained 1500 feet elevation and lost 1500 feet elevation that's a standard run for me i get my body used to climbing up and climbing down but like mark said like getting that pack weight on my back is super important so i can't just run all the time like, I've got to do these weighted rucks. I've got to do these scouting trips, these three-day bonsai trips with this weight on my back because it doesn't matter how strong my legs are. If my back gives out during the hunt because I haven't trained that, like, I'm not going to be good in the mountains. So all of my training is to be better in the mountains. But being physically fit, it's just one of these major facets that goes into being consistently successful. But there's a bunch of them that you need to work on and go down the rabbit hole of each one. But uh, definitely... And you used Cameron Haynes and Remy Warren as an example. And I've hunted with Remy. That guy is in shape. That guy can hike. But but we all have a little bit different method of getting there, you know. Uh, um, so so you got to find out what works for you. But, yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it, for me, too, like the running comes easy. Uh, the weight training is tough for me. So uh, I, I've got a really 
uh, put my focus on weight training and making sure that I'm getting that in a few days a week. So I've got a strong back and a strong core for these mountains. So, you know, doing my body weight exercises, kettlebells, pushups, pull-ups, uh, like, uh, I've got to make sure I'm doing that every, every week as well. And, and like we've talked about being a small guy, like part of being a small guy too, is being strong as everybody else out there to be able to handle that, you know? So for me, I got to make sure I get in that weight training as well. So, um, that's what works for me, but everybody's got to find their, their, their own training that works for them for the mountains. <coughs> Yeah, so I, I think um, number one tactic for harvesting mature mule deer bucks, um, you you definitely have to work your way up the trophy rungs of the ladder. Like you can't start out wanting a 190-inch deer and just think you're going to go out and kill one. Like you have to kill a, a decent four-point. You have to kill a 160-inch buck. So you really have to work your way up those rungs of the ladder of being able, you're practicing all those skills and you're building those skill sets. Again, you have to work on all these different skill sets so you show up at the trailhead undeniable. Like it's not the locations we're hunt, it's the skill set that we've all built over these years. So it's working on all these facets to show up on these hunts and being undeniable, to, ha to be able to put all these skill sets together, uh, to be able to get in and be clutch on your shot, clutch on your stock. And so like I think that the biggest thing to killing big high country mule deer, big mule deer in general, is experience and honing those instincts. That's what I would say. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I don't know how you top that answer, Brian, but I think uh, <clears throat> one of the things that first popped into my head is that last, that last little bit before you get that arrow loosed. Um, <clears throat> you know, I think a lot of guys will find a buck. They'll see a buck. They'll get a stock on a buck, but it all falls apart. Maybe it's the last 60 yards, 50 yards, 40 yards. And that's where things go wacky and it just doesn't work out they either take a bad shot they don't know what they can get away with i think that's a big part of it like brian alluded to with experience you realize what you can and can't do when you're that close um, and i think that's just something that you have to do with repetition that's why chasing bucks maybe not 190 bucks out of the gates practicing on those younger 140s to 150s 160s getting as many stocks in as you can and over time, you just kind of figure out, like, what you can and can't do in those tight quarters. And I think that's huge. And um, I think that's what separates, you know, that cream of the crop, you know, next level hunter, is that last little bit before you actually get back on that boat. I've got very little. But this is what came up in the last session. I do want to point this out. Everybody Jeez. wants the one. There's a lot of scares. Everybody wants the match. What? The fitness. Okay. I hope you're hearing Brian when he talks, Barney, when he talks about the well-roundedness. And um, a lady asked in the last one, guys, everyone naturally wants to train their strengths. They want to get their strengths better. They love shooting their bow. They want to be better. And then when they become better, they want to be better than that. But most of the time, you're neglecting your weaknesses. Take a look in the mirror. What is your weakness? When you go back country hunting or you do anything of the sort, what's your weakness? Her weakness was she says, how do I tackle the East guy? And I hate it, you know, blah, blah, blah. It's her weakness. And uh, I, her husband came up to me after the fact. 
Um, it was your husband. Yeah, you were here. Yeah, that's why. I'm sorry. Not his what's your, what, husband. What's, but your, yeah. uh, what's your wife's name? I'm sorry. <laughs> Lindsay. 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 Yeah. He goes, man, you nailed Lindsay when you said she trains her strengths. The, girl, the woman has drive. She's intense. She's, I saw her shoot. Um, but she's working on her strengths. Maybe, I'm not saying too much, but she's dialed on her strengths. And she's looking for shortcuts on her weakness. And uh, not to make it, you know, negative, but everybody does it. It's a natural human tendency. Joel. All of life is like that. His whole presentation <laughs> is about working on our human weaknesses. The control shot is not something humans are designed to do. We're trigger punchers. And it's a it's a fight. And so it's a it's a motivation. It's a getting yourself, picking your training weaknesses. Just focus on <coughs> them until they're level with your strengths. Then you can start working on your strengths some more. You know, Brian, he shoots, shoots, shoots. The dude shoots. But he's not ignoring his fitness. He's not ignoring. But he already knows one week. He says, I got to do more weight. I got to get more. And the older he gets, he's even going to get better. He's going to have to get more focused on that. Yeah, that's perfect. <laughs> yep. mm-hmm. That I like in this thing that we do with hunting is finding those secluded areas and just never having to worry about folks. Um, it's just a better feeling. It's a bigger accomplishment for me if I can find that area. Sometimes there's not animals there, but most of most of my scouting, most of my hunts are planned around an area, whether it's through e-scouting or whatever, um, an area that just isn't going to get looked at that often, where they just grow old and die. That's where I want to be. It's where animals are just not going to get looked at. For me, during the I do hunt mule deer during the rut quite a bit. You know, that's kind of most of my experience with mule deer. For me, this morning, we talked about glassing. The name of the game for me is putting my eyes on as much country as I possibly could put on when they're in the rut because the deer are on the move and the more country I can see, the more chance I got a chance to see movement. All I need to see is the buck. Like Brian said, if you see one, if you can just glimpse, there's going to be some others there. Those does are not going to be not being bothered by other bucks. They may not be right in the mix, but if you can get pinpointed and, you know, it, the more country, like bears, it's kind of the same with there's The population of bears is only so much. The more country you can see. I'd rather hunt a little bit lesser country personally where I can see more country for the more chance of movement than to focus on one particular drainage. Um, that's just my text. So analyzing, testing, proofing those glassing spots, using the tools we talked about, the view shed tool, all these tools to see what I can see from this spot. So when I get there, I already know what it's going to be. And I'm comfortable, I'm confident, I feel good about getting there. And, when, and I'm excited about going there. Um, so it's just not aimlessly locking, walking around for a high rock that you can see from. It's pre-testing, pre-proofing, um, and getting their first light and stand to last dart. We've talked about that like all weekend. So that's, that's really for the rut, man. It's just being in the position to see him move. And then once you see him move, then you can start making some game. And, you know, rutting mielder, man, they just don't stay still. And sometimes they're kind of challenging to get caught up to and intercept and so – I just feel like I got to see as much country as I can. Yeah. 
So same question for Elk, guys. Um, do your tactics change from the rut to the late season? Yeah, mine do. I mean, you know, the rut, you know, well, Randy Newberg says it really well when he talks about how he talks about how Elk seek sanctuary. Once they've been pressured, once the rut's over, once they're trying to build their fat stores, sanctuary moves up the list. It becomes a higher priority. The running sanctuary is not as, as important. So I read a couple studies, and I mentioned this in my presentation, and it was really interesting. It, you, you can Google it, and I'm sure you could find it. But, again, it wasn't designed for hunting. It wasn't written for hunting. It was habitat. But mule deer, when mule deer were experiencing pressure in Colorado, they figured out a way to work around hunters. They became more nocturnal. They got a little bit further away from the trail. They it didn't expose themselves as much, but they didn't leave the country. Like Brian talked about, his, they come back to those core areas, even though they might have got bumped out. The study found that elk, they go to different zip codes. They do not tolerate pressure as well. They will just move when they get pressure. They may come back, but they're on the move from pressure, and they distance themselves from pressure. They do not change their methods or their tactics. They just make a move. But mule deer are more likely to change their tactics. It was incredibly interesting research. And this is in Colorado where there are high-pressure trails for, re for recreation as well as hunting. What they're studying is, are the recreation people, you know how busy Colorado's becoming, what the impact are they having on the animals, not just the hunters? So that was some random study, but it's so much useful hunting information that was in there. So... They describe it in this study like how they manipulate and move around the people and just kind of almost like whitetails kind of do a little bit, maybe not to the extreme urbanization that whitetails have become, but still they do tolerate it. They just work around it more. Yeah. Yeah. I, so, um, you know, I mainly focus on elk during the rut, September, October, but I, I gained an incredible amount of, ex amount of experience rifle hunting elk late season in my early days. And so, yeah, their habitats, their, their habits just change. They're a different species uh, from the rut to the late season. And so uh, during the rut, you're hunting the cows, you're hunting, uh, you know, these bulls will make it down. They're rutting the cows, they're around. And so uh, uh, you're really hunting uh, the cows more so. As it goes to late season, yeah, these bulls, I mean, they get beat up from the rut. They run off all their fat stores. Uh, the only thing they want to do is be secluded and feed and put this weight back on. Now, bulls act different than cows. So a lot of times you're not hunting the big herds. The big herds aren't going to be where the big bulls are. Every once in a while you'll see a five-point these bulls will start running solo and these bulls will start running in bachelor crews they'll winter way higher than the cows will so they'll be up higher up in the mountains and, and they're going to find these secluded basins that don't get pressure the same as these mule deer and they're going to find a way where they can eke out a living where they're not going to get bothered back up in there they really tighten up their programs they'll almost go nocturnal i mean i remember one bull i killed with a rifle i hunted him for seven days straight and he made one mistake during daylight and he'd cross in the dark. I could even glass him in the moonlight. I'd be up there set up. So they really tighten up their programs. They don't want to be seen. Uh, the, the one thing that will force them to feed is the cold weather. When it gets gnarly cold, they have to feed. Uh, so they'll be out in those parks a little bit more, easier to glass. And really, hunting late-season elk are 
um, you know, even more so than early season elk, it, it, it's a mindset. It's living and dying behind your glass. It's finding the very best vantage points that show off this country, that show off these isolated basins. And, and, and really, you know, you, you work in the late season and you're building fires to keep warm and you just keep grabbing these vantage points until you find a bull that makes a mistake. And late season, too, like I use a lot of different tools that I don't use in the early season. Like I'll glass a lot for tracks and for feeding features. Now you can see if it's a big herd of cows because it's a lot of numbers, but if it's a bachelor herd of bulls, it's going to be smaller numbers. It's going to be, you know, one to 10 bulls. And you'll see on a hillside where they feed out and you'll see where their tracks go. This is all like giving you more information to go on where these elk are. Elk are nomadic by nature and spread out through country. There's not elk everywhere. They're in certain little locations. So when you can dial in those certain locations and then hunt those elk, uh, it's super beneficial. And it, it, as far as uh, the, these bulls, they, they, it's still they want to be away from pressure. They're going to be wintering higher than the cows, and they're going to find these isolated basins. So absolutely, the tactics totally change once it, once it gets into November and late season. I might add something to Brian. Tra I do a lot of what Brian talks about by glassing tracks. I might add a couple more things that I've kind of picked up on. So I'm looking for single sets of tracks a lot. I love to find a single set of tracks. There's a good indication that's a bull. But what I really want to see is meandering tracks. When you see a single set of tracks, straight line, perfect line, no dig spots, no weaving, they're moving. That may not give you the indication that they're wintering there. They're not holed up there. But when you see tracks coming out of a timbered slope, they're weaving around. There's some dig spots. There's a good chance he's wintering there. He's going to come out again. So I will, I will take the chance on setting on that spot, waiting for him to come out. Sometimes when I just see a single set, that may mean just, just on the move. They're not holed up in that timber. But when you can find where they're meandering around, meaning, you know, zigzagging tracks and not straight line and dig spots. And like Brian said, when they're not massive amounts of tracks, when you see tracks going up, coming down, going everywhere, it's probably a band of cows, you know, having a big party. Uh, might not be, but single set of tracks, meandering, dig spots, I'll stay and watch them. Because like Brian said, man, when, especially if it's good mm -hmm. weather. If the weather is not that cold, not that bad, man, they just don't want to show themselves. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I just have found those sets of tracks, I've seen more elk come out from those spots than I ever have from a single set of straight tracks. Spot on. Yep. So moon cycles and elk, what do you guys think? I don't pay attention to the moon yeah, at all. I'm going to hunt every I, day I can hunt. Yeah, <laughs> I, I just I don't put any weight in it. I, I'm sure they feed more during a full moon because they can see more, but I don't even know if I buy that. What happens when it's overcast? Like, I know those eat? whitetail guys are really dialed into it. I don't care what the moon's doing. I don't pay any attention on my hunt dates in September. Yeah, I have a couple same. articles there if you want to look them up on Go Hunt that I've written in 2018, 2019 for the Equinox. See, these guys have lived out here hunting. Like, so for Missouri, we kind of had to be a little more strategic with our days. So I get asked that: What are the best days to hunt elk? Any day you can hunt elk. But if I have to pick, if I got 20 days, it's 10 days before the Equinox. 10 days after the equinox, no matter what the moon's doing. If I got 10 days to hunt, I'm five days in front of the equinox. I'm five days after the equinox. The equinox is what's going to trigger the light refracting is what's going to trigger the rut, not the moon. Now, like they might move around a little more. You hear whatever. I, I just don't have any, any, any preference on moon. Yeah. I'm more down to that September. This year, I think it's the 23rd. 
22nd, 22nd or 23rd. So I'm a little bit before, a little bit after. That way you kind of get in a little fate, little range of the phase. But that is also the most popular time to be out there. When the, <laughs> so the rut ebbs and flows. Like it's, um, they'll get into heavy rut when a cow comes into estrus, and then they'll go out. I mean, I've had it perfect dates in the middle of September, and there's a bull feeding on his own out there all by himself. You, because there's no cows in estrus. So they'll go into estrus. The bulls will get hot. They'll fight it out. And, and then they'll kind of lax off. No cows in estrus. Bulls will wander off on their own. And it's different from mountain range to mountain range. It's different five miles down the mountain range. So it just ebbs and flows where you're just trying to hunt and just trying to catch that wave of the rut. Uh, yeah. But but as far as nailing dates, I mean, they rut hard all the way from the, the 5th of September all the way to the 15th of October. Ebbs and flows, and you could catch the best rut dates anywhere in between there as far as i'm concerned yep yeah i mean I, if i had a preference and we've talked about this a lot but here in montana we got that october season so i'm more focused on when there's going to be less folks out there disturbing the herd and so i'm looking at those october dates it feels like most guys are really dedicated to september when they're talking about elk hunting october comes around that's why living in the great state here it's awesome we can hunt I think it was till the 20th or 16th of October last year. Um, some of the best rutting activity I've ever seen is in that first week of October, going into the second week of October. Um, and then saying that, like I used to hunt Washington State a lot, and I made a living on those pre-rut bulls because they didn't give us the best seasons back then. Um, they give you two weeks, and those two weeks aren't always smack dab in the middle of the rut. It's usually ahead of the rut. And so we had to figure out how to kill those bulls before we're getting screaming. I mean, you go, you're not hearing a whole lot pre-rut generally, especially back in Washington. So we, we figured out how to kill them, and that was going high and um, hunting those big alpine basins just like you would a mule deer. And literally we were, well, I was killing bulls so close to these snow fields, um, killed one off a glacier field one time. And, uh, that's just, that's just what worked there. No bugling going on at all. No rut activity whatsoever. Moving higher on the hill, way above where the cows are typically rutting, you know, they're going to be rutting a couple weeks from that point. But that was my go-to and it worked really, really well. It was just going higher on the hill when they're not talking and not talking a whole lot, but trying to glass them up and go for them that way. Um, we used to find bulls out on these snow fields first part of September, <clears throat> just out there catching a little, catching some sun, but staying cool um, in these kind of windswept snow fields where they're trying to keep the flies off. And man, I mean, that was about as fun as it gets trying to put stalks on bulls sitting in snow fields in September and uh, no rut activity whatsoever. It actually got pretty difficult in that country once if they gave us a season that was like right in the middle of September when those bulls were rutting, um, that rut kicks in. There's people everywhere, especially back in that state, and everybody's screaming on their on their bugle tubes, and it's just chaos. But uh, not a lot of guys were going in pre-rut, and I feel like living here, I don't see a whole lot of guys going in October when most guys have kind of hung their hat up on elk hunting in September. I just like hunting when there's just like – I look for areas that don't have folks. I like hunting times where the people aren't going to be out there full force as well. I'm trying to avoid folks. He's antisocial in case you haven't figured that out. That's it. Yep. Roger, you had a question? Yeah, you guys answered most of it actually with that, but uh, kind of 
Yep, so Roger's asking uh, about the rut and trying to time his dates where he's at. And so if he's got eight days to hunt, would he split it up four days here, four days there, or go all in eight days earlier? How, how would you guys tackle that one, Mark? I'd go all eight days. When you start breaking it up, you got travel both sides. You're giving up time. Your odds are increased. You know, I'm a bit – I know you guys are tired of me saying it, but your odds are higher when you're in the woods more. And if you're spending your time driving to and from, you're talking about four drives versus two. So you got the same number of days. You just gave up two days of hunting. So that's big for me. And hunters are really diff- – this is a really difficult problem for a lot of hunters. You're going on a four-day hunt. By day three – you're saying, man, if I shoot a bull, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna go back as far because I gotta get back the truck, I gotta get to work. So really, you've cut two days of driving and you've cut two psychological days out. So you've just taken an eight-day hunt, turned it into a four-day hunt. I mean, ma- by math, because we all know it's afternoon. You don't want to hike eight, seven miles in, unless you're Brian Barney on the last day. Like he just said, that's what he does, and that's why he kills so many. Is just that kind of tactic. But when you start doing these little mini hunts, nothing wrong with it. If that's what you got, that's what you got. But I think you're all in. You're focused. You're driven. You're committed. You're not worrying about the traveling. You're not worrying about getting to work. You're not. You're just more relaxed. You're working the plan. And then you've also got time to change spots. So if you're doing a four-day hunt, you're all in pretty much on a spot. You don't have time to pull out move into another spot. Not a lot of flexibility. And I feel like you're going to be rushed. I feel like you're always going to be under the hourglass. That's just my thought. Yeah. I agree. I think we're all individuals, and I'd probably play it a bit different. You know, like I I used to be a weekend warrior, and we get five, six weeks in Montana. I was extremely successful hunting those weekends, and I'd take my eight days, and I'd break it up into three or four different (laughs) weekends. I'd I'd take a Friday, I'd take a Monday, or I'd take a Friday every weekend, and I'd hunt three weekends in a row. Like I'm just able to go and go so hard for those three, four days. I'm able to drive at night to save time, drive at night at the the finish end of the hunt and then I'm able to experience different phases of the rut too Uh, it seems like when I can hunt for three four days I come home I get some work done and then I'm thinking about my next spot that whole week and I'm using that information I gained from that first week and then going hard and it just seems like I'd hit pay dirt eventually like uh, the first eight days there's no there's no given that I'm going to time that rut perfect. And especially if I'm going early, like I might miss it all together. And so I get eight days of subpar hunting. But if I break it up into those three different weeks, it seems like I could, I'd hit that rut. I'd hit one of those ebb or one of those flows or one of those ebbs where I, I hit that rut perfect and it goes <laughs> off and I end up killing a bull. So I'd probably handle it a little bit different and I'd break up my vacation time and I'd stack it with my days I already have off. And, and then instead of just having eight days, if you're stacking them on weekends, like you may be able to stack that into 10 or 12 days of hunting. So I, I think I'd tackle it a touch different, but that's why we're all individuals. Like we, we all have different ways we look at things and different things that work for us. But I, I guess I'd look at it both ways and see what works best for you. Yep. Good stuff. Yep. I guess on that note, too, keeping ice in coolers, but even if you've got the top of the line coolers, ice has a hard time keeping for eight days. Mm-hmm.
I have a hard time keeping ice that long for sure. Salting your ice will lower the freezing temperature where you can really freeze it in your cooler. That seems to work good for me. Uh, but yeah, eight days is definitely stretching it for me for ice if I'm hunting hot weather. You know, usually I'll get five, six days. I mean, the only thing you can do is when you kill an elk, then get to ice, you know, uh, cool it off. Like we live in the West and so it cools down so much at night, like hanging that meat at night really cools down the temperature. Even if you can just hang it at night and then get it in the cooler during the day, it's going to keep it cool. But I'm with you is that I like to have ice, uh, but I may hunt, you know, four or five days with the ice I have, keeping it a good temperature, not opening the cooler a bunch, maybe salting my ice, lowering the freezing temperature of it. Uh, and then if I kill a bull, I'm planning on hanging them at night, getting them in the cooler and then getting to some ice right away is, is kind of how I'd tackle it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, <clears throat> I've done it a bunch of different ways. And, you know, I think w with my prior business, we have, we used to run through a lot of dry ice. So I would have all these milk jugs, frozen watered milk jugs, frozen into the bottom of the cooler. And then I would put just before I get, you know, the last town I'm going through, if I can find dry ice. I put the dry ice in there. I put those insulated blankets, even in a nice, good Yeti cooler that helps secure that ice and keep it. So you're putting dry ice on top of the milk jugs and then you're layering that taking taking out that space, I guess, with either sleeping bags or insulated blankets. And it's surprising because that, <clears throat> that dry ice freezes that water so hard. You get a lot of extra time out of that. Um, and that's what I've done in the past. And just layer that bottom with those milk jugs full of, uh, you know, gallon milk jugs full of water. Super smart. Frozen water. But you're talking about a subtle point I think he's talking about. is He's talking dedicated coolers. He's not talking oh, yeah. his beer cooler. Well, he didn't have a beer cooler. But he's not talking about his sparkling water coolers. Um, <laughs> that's a completely separate cooler. Right? So you're not, My LaCroix a, cooler is, yeah. It's a dedicated setup me. that's sealed, never opened. Yeah, you're ready right. Ready to go. But I want to add, too, especially for you new hunters, guys, the meat, there's some theories on this, and Ryan, I hope Ryan will speak this, but meat that's cool and wet is in more danger than meat that is warmer and drier. So people get really freaked out about they got to get their meat cold, 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 cold. But like Brian, Barney just said, the nights get cool enough, but you got to manage the meat. It can't be hanging in the sun. It can't be just bacon, but you'll be surprised at what meat can tolerate if it's taken care of, if it's dried, if it's deboned, if it's got more, you know, it's got more air circulation, air circulation, dry environment, no direct sun, 70 degrees, 75 degrees, man, I've held meat a long time at those temperatures. So I'm not as likely to put it in the cooler unless early season, really difficult situation. Um, I was in New Mexico this last year and I had a very difficult situation. 90 degrees that's a whole nother ball game never gets cool at night so I, I manage the cooler situation like that but i mean do you agree with that meat thing i mean he stayed at camp on the bear hunt and i, mean, I was he, managing meat the whole time he was kind of being the the camp mom but down there but uh managing llamas <laughs> had to make sure llamas firewood but he was moving that meat all day long just kept moving it to the best spot and the meat was perfect who was it that said last week they said one of the instructors was it you, Brian? Might no. have been me. That, I talked about it. That a bit. when you when you kill an animal, their body temperature is you know. That's exactly right. High, like all of us, we have you know a normal body temperature, and the minute you start cleaning that animal out and sectioning it, it's it's meat's cooling down just from the natural temperature it already is, which is 
you know, pretty high. So you can actually put that meat through a lot before it gets spoiled because it's it's yeah. still cooling down even from what it was when it was alive. Yeah, I think <clears throat> I think Mark said it right. Um, you'd be surprised at how long you can have, you know, meat sitting out, hanging. I think that first night is really important when you pull that thing off, getting it completely cooled down, um, tacky dry. I think that's that's a, a huge part of how long you're going to be able to hold that meat. But we, you know, we, we're always adjusting. We're, there's never one set way. We pulled a bear off the mountain this year. It was bloody hot up there, like really hot. And it was going to be hot, uh, hard to get it, you know, really cold because the evenings were hot. The nights were pretty warm. So <clears throat> in that situation, we had a really cold creek right next to camp. And I literally dunked that meat in the water, which is something not a lot of people preach doing that and getting it wet. But we had, you know, we had it, I don't know, that creek was what, 50 yards from camp? Yeah. <clears throat> so we got it down off this hot, hot day. You know, we're, it's in our packs, heat of the day. We get it in that down there. And I'm soaking that to where it is completely chilled, not to the point where it's starting to fade the meat or anything like that. And then I pulled it out. I dried it in a shady spot on these logs, I don't know, four or five hours before night came, and I was able to get it hung. And uh, even though we had gotten it wet, it was perfectly good because we got it so cold in that creek. I mean, it was spring runoff that then we were able to dry it. Then we were able to hang it. As long as I kept it in the shade and didn't let that sun hit it, it was completely fine. And it was the key fantastic was dry. shade. The key word is yeah. dry. He didn't pull it out of the water, throw it in the garbage, in the trash bag and hang it. Mm-mm dry yeah trash bags hold moisture and um, same thing with these coolers like they're talking about meat being wet and you want to get it cooled down and i use coolers a ton like in hawaii it never gets below 70 degrees and you got to keep keep access meat good and you may be on a three four day hunt um but but once that meat gets wet like that you're on borrowed time it's always good at night to pull that meat out of the cooler and hang it up get air around it that thick skin that gets around that meat that's a good thing it protects all the meat inside so you want to get that thick skin so every night no matter where i'm i'm trying to pull that meat out and get air around it and as far as being on in a cooler you're on borrowed time when the meat gets wet and sits in moisture you got maybe three days it keeps cool but you got to get it butchered up so what you want to do is you want to block up your meat off the bottom of the cooler so it's never sitting in water you're always draining your water out you can use two by fours you can use frozen water bottles frozen milk jugs uh, but you want to get that meat up out of the water when it's sitting in that cooler you don't want it sitting down in the water Uh, but yeah you can get away with a lot like like uh, Hillary was saying that that animal's 98 degrees when you kill it you just want it cooling down you want to get the height off quick and the shade's going to be 15 degrees cooler than the sun direct sunlight will bake it uh, but but if you manage your meat, I've hunted game animals in 100-degree heat, animals all over in the early season. I've never lost any meat. I've always been able to care for it. So one of the things I do is I build exactly what he's talking about. I have a two befores on their side with one-by-threes crossed. I build them exactly to every cooler that I've got. I've got them stacked in my corner. Whenever I grab them, I just grab the one that fits the cooler, throw it in the bottom, and that keeps the meat out of the water. Mm-hmm. So you can put... And then I leave the plug open. I don't want no water in that. Not only do I not want my meat in the water, I don't want the vapor. I want that water draining. So I'll park my truck. I'll do whatever I have to to keep an angle, put a rock, 
So it's constantly draining that water. Now, I lose a little ice like that, but no vapor, no humidity. It meets dry, but it's cool. Um, and that little rack system is super easy to build. And, by the way, when you go camping, who likes lunch meat that's been floating around in the bottom of your water? So I've used, started using for our family camping trips those little racks. They work great. Um, but just about inch and a half. And um, so, I mean, that's what I use to keep it up. So we um, we got a little cooler downstairs. It's called a Dometic, I think. They're not cheap by any stretch, but it's got this little, you know, that little power box that we're using out here for the Julka showers. That's what this thing runs on. It's a freezer. It's a fridge. It's whatever temperature you want to set it at. I think it's a game changer for us guys because you don't have to have ice. You can have that cooler completely bone dry. Um, this will be the first season that I actually go into a hunting season and try it, but we've been using it here and that little Dometic power box, um, that keeps that cooler. I can, I can chill that thing. I can run it down to in the teens, 20 degrees, whatever, and freeze anything inside there, or it can run it to 37 degrees and just keep it as a cooler. And so I can travel basically just like with a, a running refrigerator or freezer. And it's, I think it's a hundred quart. It plugs into your, cooler, um, cigarette lighter, cigarette lighter. It's money and it's big and it'll hold a lot of meat and, um, no ice required. That's super cool. Yeah. I think they're brand new, so we might they might give us a code. And at the end of this, I'll send texts or emails to all y'all with codes that we have if you for any products that we can get for you. And we'll try, but yeah, it's slick. It's really cool. <laughs> what was that? So uh, what are they measure? I use the 110. Is that 110 quarts? Quart, quarts. Okay, that's what I thought it was. Yeah. You use two or one? One. You can get a whole elk in there, whole elk. boned. Yep, boned. I can actually get the quarters in there, too. Really? Yeah, I've got one in there before with quarters. Wow. I can't really do that. You must. Uh, yeah, with ice in it. Yeah, definitely boned. Uh, uh, you're right, bone in. I think I can get the hindquarters in there, and if I bone the fronts, yeah, I think I can yeah, get a whole elk yeah, in there. Yeah. It's pretty tight with a whole elk, but I can get ice and a whole elk in a 110 for me. Yeah. I run a little more because, you know, I got usually got 12 packs of be adult beverages or other things <laughs> got to go in there. <laughs> yeah. I got I got the one, I think it's the 125. That's what I run. Yeah. That one's pretty slick. Um, as you boned out, it gets pretty good airflow around it, but uh, you try to break up an elk. So the question was uh, uh, about uh, when you have boned out meat and you're taking it out of the coolers to cool down at night, do you spread it out or do you leave it in the bags? And so uh, my answer to it is I like to use multiple bags. The more bags, the better. That means less meat in a bag, more surface area. So like doing an elk, like four bags minimum. I, I actually like to run six bags if it's hot weather and I'm, and I'm uh, chilling my meat like that at night. What do you guys run? Same. Six bags. Yeah. I almost always run six bags. Yep. Not for another plug, but those Graxaw six bag, oh, money. Yeah. What What are those game bags called again? Graxaw. Graxaw. Yep. Yeah. They, uh, super lightweight bags, and you've been using them for a while, right, For Ryan? a long time. Yeah. yeah, and I'll, you know, those, <clears throat> I think they say 40 pounds per. Mm -hmm. So um, I add a few of those bags to it. So it's even more bags. It's more like eight bags. 
Um, they're pretty small, but eight bags and you're going to get, I think, you know, what's the average, would you say? 300 pounds 300. off a bull. Yep. So uh, if you can get 40 pounds per bag, yeah, you're going to need a few more than the six. Yep. Do you guys have those on your website? I don't think we do. Okay. No. No. Austin no. sent us a bunch. If you want to buy some, they're up here. We got a box of them in the back. So. No, we've been using them for a handful of years. They here. look like great bags. Yeah, they're fantastic. Super <laughs> lightweight. They're like all over our house. I don't know. There's like, oh, orange Graxaw bag. Oh, where does that come from? Like, <laughs> you yeah. gotta be, you gotta be careful about dragging them around. They're, um, they're really durable if they're just hanging weight, but they're not super durable. They're not like a caribou bag or a you bag or things like that when it comes to like dragging them over to the tree and stuff they're they're meant for backpacking like yeah, they're you, you hang them but that. you want to be careful with just use yep. care um, but they're man the airflow through them is amazing the fly retention is amazing um and they're super light super freaking light mm-hmm The workflow, the meat workflow. Yeah, good question. All right, this is a whole podcast oh, in man. itself. Don't get me started on this. We could do a whole day on this. We geek out on this stuff, too. I'm always trying to one-up him. This he is usually what these two talk about all the time. He makes sausage, I make better sausage. Mm. He makes brats, I up the game, make better brats. I'm just yeah. kidding. I'm a, I'm a, I'm kind of a freak about it when I do. I just love – I've been doing my own meat since, I, you know, just mm-hmm. early days of whitetail, so – um, this is how bad I am for Christmas. I asked for, I asked my wife, it took her two years to come to her senses, but I asked her for a 30 quart electric stuffer. And, uh, so I had a guy come over one time and he worked in the meat department at the store in town. He comes over and he sees, I have a hand crank 11 quart LEM, you know, brought one in there. And then I pulled down this 30 quart um like foot feed you got the foot feed foot uh, feed stuffer definitely with all the interchangeable parts and the dices dude we i mean our meat department has a smaller one than your crank and we're doing commercial brats but i can do about a mile of brats in about <laughs> in about an hour um but it's re- you know you don't have to go that far but um your own meat i do not age beat i do not now i know people are going to disagree with me I do not age elk wild game. I do not hang it. I do not age it. It can't get off the hoof and into a brat fast enough for me. So I'm not into that game. I don't like it like that. I don't like – I just don't – it's just not my thing. I know a lot of guys have a lot of success with it. Um, They want to treat them like beef and they want to age them. I get it. I know guys that do a month in the – I mean, not me. I just don't. So I don't know what you guys do, but I like to get it done, processed, and – uh, you know, Ryan said something you can talk about. I want him to talk about it, but he's got me thinking about grinding on demand. He does a lot of that, and that's there's a lot of good qualities for that. And I'm going to steal that. I'm not. I'm going to claim it to be my own after I do it. But <laughs> it didn't come from him. He's been talking about it all weekend, and uh, what he means is taking a chunk of meat that he freezes whole and just grinding it and dealing with it as they're making it, as they're preparing it. Really quality way to deal with it. Versus freeze or burn. The more surface area you create, the more, you know, you're you're shorting shortening the longevity of that meat. How much? I don't know exactly, but um, and vacuum seal. I want you to talk about some of that because that's you do it at another level than I. Well, do. where where that came from was just you know during hunting season, it can be so hectic. Yeah. Right. So 
trying to speed up the process, you know, we're not doing all the sausage making. We're not doing all the burger grinding and the patting and all that at the time of we're, you know, we're getting all the choice cuts. We're getting the, uh, the backstraps, you know, cut to size and vacuum packed chamber sealed. We're getting the T loins in a certain bag. We're getting the certain cuts on the, on the hindquarters in certain bags, but all those other cuts that we would typically burger, we're just putting that in its own bag. Um, you know, maybe one to two pounds and we'll fresh grind that later. You know, we've got a little grinder in the kitchen and as we need it, we pull it out. We thaw it and we can add seasonings or whatever, um, to it. If we want fat, if we want, sometimes yes, sometimes not. And, uh, it's just a good way to do it. And, and that's just, it's just to speed up the process as far as when we, sometimes we're just too busy in hunting season to do all that. Um, but as far as equipment, some of the pieces that I'd recommend is, uh, you know, as far as a grinder, grinder's a big one. Uh, I've got that one and three quarter horsepower grinder. It's a monster. <laughs> it makes. There is a smaller one that Meet it, Your Maker makes. And yeah. like, so for me, like if your wife, I don't know about you, you guys, but I'm guessing. Carry it. I'm guessing <clears throat> your wives probably do a lot of the cooking, right? So I'm all about like, let's grind the meat. But this thing <laughs> is like, it's a full on. And then I got to carry it, get it on the counter. And then I got to, you got to clean all the parts and then you got to put it back. Cause it's huge. You know, you can't keep it on your counter in your kitchen. It's really heavy. So I saw Corey, when you guys made brats, he had exactly the same as like a little tiny one. And I was like, that's the one I want. So if you're going to do like this grind as you go, you may want to get one that's smaller so your wife can move it around. She can grind, whatever. The pieces aren't like huge. So we have a little... But we have a Cabela's one. Little half. That's really bad. Horsepower it one. It's slow. It's got a small feed to it. But if we really want to make brats and we really want to grind stuff and make a bunch, like we made a ton of brats for this. And so we ground up a lot of meat. And uh, that one and three horsepower, you can't even keep up with it. I mean, it spits it out so fast. Um, yeah, the wife doesn't like carrying it around for sure. But it, it is grinds. Heavy. It is like, you know, it's if you've driven though. like a Ford. I don't know if, sorry, if you drive a Ford, but like if you drive like a Ford you're, when you're like Uh-oh. in college and it's like the doors are about to fall off and everything, and then you get a great job and you buy yourself a Lexus or, you know, and you're driving this car and you're like, oh my gosh, that's what this grinder is like. When you have a little Cabela's crappy grinder that shakes when you put meat in it, it feels like everything's going to blow off. And then you put meat in this grinder. It's like the most satisfying factionary feeling you're just like yeah bigger's better and it's it's really so i would recommend spending the money on the better grinder well and the the thing is like what you'll find with grinders is they'll heat up on you and uh with that one and three horse power it's got a wide opening like i said you can't feed it fast enough it doesn't take you very long like in 20 minutes you could have your entire elk ground up if you wanted to and so it's really not on that long and it spits it out keeps the meat really cold um probably the one piece of gear that, that I try to recommend to everybody I can, and a lot of people are trying to vacuum pack, you know, all their meat products with food savers. I don't know about you guys, but food savers have never treated me very well. They don't last very long. The seals break on them. They don't get all the air out. You get freezer burn if you don't eat it right away. Um, I think everybody should have an air chamber sealer. Everybody. You got one yet? No. No, I so don't. I'm better. I, I won't you up you up, on that you one. You up me on that one. Air chamber sealers pull all the air out. It's pretty fast. It's just a way better system. 
<laughs> I can't believe Mark Livesey does not have an air chamber sealer. That's ridiculous. It, you, it's so the only way to already, go. You already had it first, so it was anticlimactic for me <laughs> to get it. So, so we all take so much pride in this meat that we procure. procure. Uh, it, it takes so much effort to harvest this animal, to get them out of the mountains. And so we take a lot of pride in our, in our butchering. But a lot of this stuff is just learned by, by trial and error and by doing it. You know, is uh, basically when we get the meat home, it's caring for it the whole way. I don't age my meat either. Most of my stuff's early season. And it's just pretty much dissecting it in the different meat groups, cleaning it up, and then figuring out which cut you, cuts you like and which cuts you don't. And so I uh, do a lot of steaks, you know, of course, out of the good cut. Um, I like doing my back straps whole and cooking them that way. Um, so like, uh, how we'll do ours is, um, we'll, we'll cook it with a thermometer in it wrapped in tin foil, seasoned up, get it to about 120, 125 degrees, pull it out of the oven, pan sear it, and then stick it in a tin foil, let it rest for 10 minutes, maybe in a cooler or something like that. So I like cooking those whole chunks of meat. It cooks really good that way, but, uh, doing, uh, my own steak, grinding my own burger, same as these guys. Uh, lately, I've, I've used a lot of my scraps like antelope meat is really good. So I don't like to grind, grind any antelope meat into burgers. So the cutoffs of that go into fajita meat. And so I'll just slice it all in fajita meat. It's all good to go. And then we'll have it, you know, uh, whether it's a, a, a noodle dish, whether it's a, a, a fajitas we're having or tacos or whatever the case, it's all sliced up, easy for my wife to pull out and cook or me to pull out and cook. Um, so the one thing I do different, I do my own jerky as well. The one thing I do different is like um, I don't do my own pepperoni sticks or my own summer sausage. I just haven't gone through the learning curve of it. And so what I do is I'll cube my meat for burger. And I do a lot of this cube meat like Ryan does where I'll grind it at the time. Uh, but what I'll do is at the end of the year, I'll have some cube meat. Uh, find a trusted butcher shop where you get all your own meat back and ask them the questions like, how much meat do I need for my own lot? Because a lot of these places are just grinding meat and passing it back to you. So find like a really good butcher that you can trust and know that, okay, a 35-pound lot of meat is going to make one batch of summer sausage. I'm going to get all my meat back. Then they'll put the, the salon, uh, put the um, uh, jalapenos in there and cheese and things of that nature. And, and I just haven't spent the time learning the process of doing it, but I have uh, spent the time to, to find a good butcher that I trust that turns in really good stuff that then we can give away at Christmas or use up throughout the year. So that's kind of my process. Yeah, I will say if you're a beginner too, I will add to if you're a beginner and they try to sell you on the fact that you can use this grinder as a grinder and a stuffer. No. It just, I mean, do you agree? It just no, don't work, guys. Mm -hmm. Spend $100, get even if you have a cheapy little hand grinder. I mean, not grinder, stuffer. So if you're going to make broth, they just don't work out. I never, the thing's jamming. It just never works. And you can't control the speed. It's either too fast, too slow. You're blowing up your casings. I mean, it's just a mess. Um, as far as casings goes, uh, I like natural casings. I just like, I don't like the synthetic ones as much. Um, and quality kills, you know, just like everything else. Go to meat packing places and get the really nice. They're not that expensive. Um, sheep casings are a lot, are doubled or tripled the price of hog casings, but you're going to get a bigger, you know, a bigger brat or a bigger. I've gotten into making natural these, um, my own recipe of hot dogs. And my kids go nuts over these hot dogs. I triple grind them. They come out just like a freaking real hot dog. Um, it's brand new last year. I'm going to post the recipe on this pretty quick, but I've been kind of perfecting the recipe, but I really, really, really like that. And my kids really love it. So 
But I love making all kinds of stuff. I mean, even if I jack, I've done some dry Italian <laughs> sausages I've tried. The first batch I did, don't follow. If they say put fennel in it, don't. It's kind of like curry. <laughs> Sucks. No fennel in the dried sausage. It's super cool. It's like, um, you know, this is all me and my family eat all year long is wild game. It's so good. It's so, it's so good to play with and mess with your recipes and, and find what works for you and your family. And I'm always adjusting it. You know, one year I've got too much burger. One year I've got too much steaks. One year I've got too much, you know, backstory. So I'm always adjusting it for my family. And then my family's growing too. My girls are getting older. So all of a sudden mm-hmm. now I've got to have an extra steak in the packages. <laughs> and so you just make these adjustments. You keep learning. But it's really getting in the habit of using this day in, day out. And it's it's the best organic grass-fed protein on the planet. It's the healthiest stuff you can put in your body. And so it's just like getting in the habit of, of using it day in, day out, week in, week out. I mean, it's the best meat on the planet. Yeah, I think there's something satisfying about, you know, after you get the animal, you get it back and just breaking down the whole thing yourself, getting it packaged up, getting it in the freezer. You know, Brian alluded to the fact that sometimes you don't get your meat back. I think that is extremely common. You're not going to get your meat back from – unless you have a real trusted butcher. Especially if you're in the Midwest and you're hunting whitetails. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just not, not going to happen. It's not happening. So you so take all this doing time it to... Yourself. Yeah, yeah doing it yourself. I mean, you you cut off your own pieces for making your own jerky. Um, some of those not-choice cuts, we can it. And that is probably the best way to do, you know, well, we do a lot of canning, whether it's bear meat or elk meat or deer meat, because you can't really go wrong with canned meat. I mean, it works on everything, tacos, you name it. And it's always cooked, even if it's a bear. You don't have to worry about trichinosis or anything like that. Just come home. If you don't have time to cook this elaborate meal, you pop the top off the can, and it's good to go. And um, so we do a lot of that. Making jerky is kind of a staple. Uh, but I think it's a big investment. But over time, you know, having good meat-making equipment – like the chamber sealer that he's been too cheap to buy, a uh, good stuffer, a really good grinder. That's just going to make life extremely easy. And, man, you get into the rabbit hole of making your own brats and sausages and summer sausages and jerky. And, uh, yeah, there's something real satisfying about that. I absolutely I, and, love it. And, honestly, what they charge now to process meat, oh, it doesn't man. take you long to have your own stuff. And I will say one more thing about, you know, I did a hunt last year. We filmed with the Bearded Butcher guys. I didn't know who these dudes were. From Idaho, from Ohio, super quality dudes. They've got some of the most incredible videos on breaking down deer and stuff and how to cut it up and how to really do it. And so Bearded Butchers, guys, look up their YouTube video. They really do some good stuff. And so if you're listening on this podcast, that's another good one. And But quality guys, I've now I'm buying some of their seasonings and stuff. Man, they, they're really doing it right. So. Um, they've won up me on the YouTube meat processing videos. They, they, they got, they actually know what they're cutting mm-hmm. and what it's actually named. <laughs> I just like put it on the table and that looks like a steak. And, uh, so, um, it's really good. It's a really good process. They can, they can really, they really go through it in detail. Super cool. All well, right. I think we've gone long. Okay. Yeah. I yeah. think everyone's wasted. Um, stone glaciers here. Let's go out and shoot some discs, eat some brats and we're having brats and salmon tonight. <clears throat> and we'll be making s'mores over the birch barrels out there later. Brian's worried about the beat Barney shoot going into the dark again. So he's like, we got to get out there and start shooting. If you want to yeah, do daylight that, today. Yeah. <laughs> daylight. Yeah, for sure. okay. All right. Thanks, guys. All right, guys. That's a wrap. Really enjoyed that format, that question and answer. 
Uh, I thought we got out a, a lot of good information there. Um, so yeah, uh, psyched to do that. I want to do more of that with like a panel. I think that works really well. Um, and, and it's good to get the the question and answers, you know, from uh, backcountry hunters that that are you know either struggling or have questions about making their game plan or just pertinent to their hunt because I think it applies to so many of us. So psyched to get that out to you guys. Um, want to thank our sponsors again. I want to thank Black Rifle Coffee Company again, veteran owned. Uh, best coffee on the planet make sure to check them out and you can get a promo to uh, just go to black rifle coffee company landing page eastman's and then put in the promo code brian and you'll get a discount there and um, i also want to thank matthew's bows uh, building the best bows on the planet uh, so psyched with these bows i mean there's a lot of great brands and great bows nowadays uh, but i'm just so impressed with what matthew's coming up with they just hold a tune real forgiving shooters and um uh, I, I really enjoy shooting them. So thanks to those guys for their support of the podcast. Uh, if you're in the market for a new bow, make sure to check them out. Again, check out uh, Eastman's Tag Hub. They're giving away that Quiet Cat bike this month. And um, we've also got that promo code for the magazines, uh, uh, Elevated321. You can punch that in and get a discount free outdoor edge knife. So, um, man, oh, man. So just getting back here from this um, Hawaii trip, just an amazing trip and a bunch of close encounters and great time with good friends and uh, just doesn't get any better for a hunt, but exhausted. Uh, <laughs> ran myself ragged out there and the, the, the heat, well, it's not even really the heat, it's more the humidity, but I guess a combination of both. But uh, yeah, we were going from the minute we hopped off the plane till the minute we left and uh, just getting home, I finally got a good night's sleep last night. So feeling human again anyways, but uh, just recovering from that and uh, getting ready for the next one. Um, so yeah, I've got an August hunt coming up here and i um, super excited about that. So just need to get my work done and responsibilities done and make sure the family's good and do all those little things and, and uh, continue with my heat training. August is going to be hot and uh, these western states are struggling right now. We're, we're in a drought and the majority of them and there's going to be uh, uh, fires. They're already, you know, it's already smoky here in Montana. We've got a couple burning. Uh, they think they won't get the one out that's down south of my valley until October. So uh, pretty spooky stuff this summer with the western fires. Uh, we're definitely going to be dealing with the elements during our hunts. You know, we're going to be dealing with smoke and, and heat and hot summer. So we have to be prepared and ready ourselves for it. So tough to glass through that stuff. So um, but, but anyways, you know, it's, um, the hand we're dealt and, uh, uh, we have to play it to the best of our ability. So, uh, we need to make sure we're ready. Um, so keep up the training. Um, man, oh man, it, uh, get some work done, some responsibilities done, pass off some of these houses and, um, I'll be sitting in good shape for season. So thanks a bunch of you guys for the support. I hope you guys enjoyed the Western Summit, uh, question and answer portion. Uh, uh, I'm going to get creative here before season and really get some good ones recorded that are pertinent to, to Western hunting and, and pertinent to the season that we're hunting uh, to help you guys be more successful and give you some entertainment. Uh, I know a lot of us have a ton of windshield time across the West for our fall hunts, and it sure is nice when you're entertained by a podcast. So I'm uh, going to make sure that I get you that, that good information and... Um, and uh, present it in an in entertaining format as well. So uh, thanks, you guys, for the support. I appreciate you. Uh, keep working hard towards your goals. Season's coming. Uh, 
and uh, check in with you next week.